Great. Good morning. Welcome to Yongsan Baptist Church English Sunday School class for September 25th, 2022. Time is flying. We were um, out last week and uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were working on our way through finishing the first, first or second lesson of Unit 7 in our study of biblical creation. We were looking at evidence from the opposition on, or the, the concept is to look out for attacks, arguments, and assumptions of evolution so that we can be good apologists or defenders of the faith from the perspective of creationism, biblical creationism. Today, so that since that uh, was a few weeks ago, we're going to do a little bit of a review of the evidence from the opposition. We did speak about the basic assumptions of evolution, and there were a long list of them, and then we compared those and contrasted those with the basic assumptions of, uh, of creationism. And then we looked at definitions of science, or scientific definitions of facts, theories, and laws, and we discussed how science is innately experimental, right? You, you have to do experiments to test science, and that is called empirical science. So that we have empirical or experimental, experimental observable science, right? And then there's a different concept of origins science, and that's trying to explain where things came from in a way that you can't necessarily observe or experiment with. But in empirical science, things are observable, repeatable, and testable. Okay, this is what we covered last time. Then we discovered that the evolutionary approach to origins in this concept um, as an entire model, right? Not just evolution of one, within one kind, just speciation, right? Or adaptation over time. But the concept of evolutionism, the belief in the entire model, that it was Big Bang, molecules to man, right? And that entire concept is not, in the strictest sense, empirical science because it can't be observed, repeated, or tested. So according to these definitions, the evolutionary model is not observable, repeatable, or testable. It is then a belief. As much a belief as creationism is a belief because we can't observe repeat or test what happened at the creation. We can believe it, and then on that assumption that the Bible is true, and that God is real, and that creation happened the way that God said, we then do science with those assumptions. We have to start with origins assumptions, which is belief, and then test today, right, in observable empirical science, to either support or refute our assumptions. And so then getting that to that, that understanding that both evolution and creation require faith and facts. They require belief in the assumptions in order to test that assumption against observable science today. Okay, we looked deeper at the fact that there are really, when we, when we talk about the term evolution, it is more than just the beaks on a finch in the Galapagos Island, right? The, Evolution itself has to have, as a worldview, has to have multiple stages to be real in order to be a supportable worldview. And only one of those, I'll give you a hint, is observable science. The rest are religious doctrine or dogma, 
Okay, the first one that would have to exist is cosmic evolution, which would be the origin of time, space, matter from nothing. We have a, an explanation for that. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Evolution's perspective on the origin of everything is all the nothing in the universe got together, condensed into a space smaller than this period, and then exploded into all the energy. And then energy somehow became matter, and then matter begat more matter, begat more matter, begat more matter, and then inanimate matter begat life, and then life begat more complex life, and somehow we went from nothing to us. So, cosmic evolution is the beginning of that whole process. Chemical evolution is that all the elements evolved from hydrogen. That initial explosion yielded hydrogen, maybe helium, the first two elements on the, on the periodic table, and that through whatever process of chemical evolution, we got all the rest of the periodic table elements. Then there is stellar evolution, the stars and the planets which form from gas clouds. Some of those planets are gaseous and some of them are solid, but then the concept would be that they all started from gas and somehow came, became solid. There is a theory that we won't get into that stellar evolution may have happened first when only hydrogen and helium existed and that in the power of the star's reactions, the rest of the elements were created within the star. But again, they came into existence by chance, circumstances over a long time, we can't use the word created. Um, but again, that's a, a, long, a lot of deep physics stuff that I don't understand at all, and we're not gonna get into it. But that organic evolution is another stage that is required for evolution to be true. Life has to spring from non-life, right, or inanimate matter. Uh, there is no observable process, repeatable process, or testable process that can tell us any facts about cosmic evolution, chemical evolution, stellar evolution, or organic evolution. We can't take today an inanimate, non-living thing from a molecule to a building. We can't take anything of any size and make it alive, right? So we can't test that, but we, they have to believe it. The next one would be what's called macroevolution. So once you have life, it's one animal or plant changing from one type of a thing into another type of a thing. Because evolution depends upon pre-existing conditions bringing about new conditions. That pre-existing life means there had to have been life of some type, maybe a single macromolecule, right? One single organism, single cell organism that decided to split at some point and then became a multi-celled organism and then became a an organism with some kind of body part, whether that's fins or limbs or whatever, right? And then eventually it, it comes out onto land and grows limbs and loses the gills and all these kind of concepts of one kind of thing becoming a new kind of thing. Then when there are kinds of things, plural, and not just one kind of living organism, you have microevolution. And this is variation of form within a kind. This is differences in skin tone, in feather length, in beak density, right? This is differences in the length of a neck, or the strength of a tongue, or the, the size of your feet, or the amount of hair on your body, right? These are variations within a kind, the size of a dog, 
but everyone in the world still recognizes a dog as a dog, whether it's a Chihuahua or an Irish Wolfhound, right? They still recognize a dog as a dog. That's a big dog, that's a small dog, that's a hairy dog, that dog doesn't bark, but <laughs> they all still recognize it as a dog. No one looks at it and, well, except maybe your cat that I call a panther, but that's still kind of a, a cat, right? So this one is the only observable, testable science, right? We can, can we, should we use these observations to extrapolate the truth of these other stages of evolution? That is the challenge for someone who believes in evolution. Whether they claim to believe God or not, if you try to follow the worldview that evolution is true, you have to believe all of these to ever get to this. All right, we did cover that last time. Now, new kinds, if there were such a thing, this might be a little of a diversion, but I'm going to do it anyway. If we were to find new kinds from old kinds, right, there would need to be some kind of transition. Would you agree? And if there's some kind of transition, maybe it would look something like this. Maybe from a cat to a bush baby, or a bush baby to a cat. Or to a clownfish. Maybe they decided to go back in the water. I don't know. Maybe a caterfly instead of a butterfly. That's cute, right? <laughs> what about... Go. Yeah? No? Not with a, not melting wheel? Mix it with a snake? I mean, they act like snakes sometimes. Or cat and a cow, right? I mean, it's got to be believable. It's an easy transition, right? Technology gets us there. We can see it. We can see the resemblance. There's obviously relation, right? All right. I mean, they, they look so much alike. Go, this is starting. Go, this is starting. And then the hedgehog. Well, um, I mean, I, I can see definite similarities between the attitudes here. Come on, do your thing. Very protective. I don't know that they love the water as much as the manatee. But you know, some, some of them do. My cat used to drink water from the fountain. What about a koala with a C instead of a K? Or mix it with a lemur. The, I mean, the opportunities are endless, right? If, if one kind of a thing, like an amphibian, can become a mammal, or a reptile can become a bird, or vice versa. Maybe as an otter, or as a panda. I don't know. Lots of ideas. There's a few more. Oh, you can't see that one. It's all blown out. That's a white peacock. It's also a cat. And that's a raven. That's a cat. That one fits pretty well. Some of them are funny, like a snail. <laughs> Or a squirrel. Look, this is perfect. I, I'd see that on, in the yard and I'd believe it. <laughs> Zebra. A wolf. Yeah. Some of them, they think themselves, right? I think every cat thinks they're a tiger. Right? You can see that happen. That's, that's an obvious transition. Maybe it happened the other way, right? Maybe over millions and millions of years, the tiger became the domesticated cat. They're still related, right? Was it genetic potential one way or the other way? Was it a loss of genetic potential? Now we'll get a little bit more serious. 
Is it a new kind of thing comparing a house cat to a tiger? No. no, it's not a new kind of thing. That's genetic diversity and variation within the kind that was designed by God. Because if you look at big cats, we still call them cats. We still recognize they are cats. And that is, not that you would have a domesticated cat face, but the similarities in the DNA structure were there in the design in the first place. God designed a big cat, and it, its children had so much genetic diversity that they could become, as they separated, right, different cats. But that diversity of a domesticated cat compared to a tiger is not a gain of evolution over time. They didn't gain any information to become a, an eight-pound house cat instead of an 800-pound killer, right? They had to lose information. A loss of information is not advancement, right? So that's just a key distinction there when you're talking about the concepts of evolution. These are funny. There are no new kinds. There are no, there is no evidence of one kind of thing becoming another kind of thing. But they want to talk about it. It is only a belief as much as the fairy tale of cats and llamas. Okay, so that's review. Darwin's only observable evidence for evolution and action was the great variation that occurs within species of animals and plants under domestication. Like I said, we can speciate plants and animals on purpose. People that have green thumbs can take plants, can interbreed them, right, cross-pollinate them, and come up with different kinds of plants. But again, that's under domestication. There is an intelligent actor acting upon the genetic information that's already there to bring about something else. But guess what? That flower that's pink, when that one was red and that one was white, is still the same flower. It just has different variations. Um, it, you haven't created a snail out of a plant, right? You haven't made that mimosa turn into a tree that gives pecans, right? It's not one kind of thing becoming a new kind of thing. But Darwin, who admittedly knew nothing about genetics, his only degree was in religion, assumed that there was virtually no limit to this variation among the individuals of a species. Though any breeder nowadays would tell you otherwise. In the first edition of his book on the origin of species, Darwin said that he had no difficulty imagining that there, were, there could be a race of bears entering the water to catch fish, slowly developing wider mouths, shorter legs, longer tails, until they evolved by chance into what we see as great whales. What an imagination. Thus Darwin extrapolated observable but limited variation that occurs across all the individual species, and he, had, he extrapolated that into unobservable evolution of fundamentally new animals. And I often think about what new kinds of animals could come about, but it's again imagination, creative thinking, it's a game, right? It is not reality. And it's definitely not something we should place our faith in. Um, I want to continue the analysis of creation and evolution by looking not only at the concept, like we did last time and then during this review, but also its conflict. So the first of, the, of only two things that I'm going to focus on, there are several reasons why there's a conflict between evolution and creation, but I want to only focus on two today. The first one is that Darwin's evolution story conflicts with the biblical record of creation. We've said this many times over the last year, but there is no way 
If you really know what evolution teaches, and you really know what the Bible teaches, there's no way to make them agree. The only way you can in your own head make them agree is if you don't know what they say, if you lie about what they say, or you take away from what they say. Okay, Dr. Terry Mortensen from Answers in Genesis has pointed out in several different works, and I've watched the videos about this and, and other uh, um, presentations he's given, but he points out that the order of creation in Genesis 1 contradicts the order of events in worldwide evolution teaching in at least 30 points. We didn't cover all 30 of those, but several months ago, we did cover a handful of them, comparing the order of events in Genesis with the order of events in all of the textbooks of, no, oh, that just broke. Cool. <laughs> the order of events in the Bible is that the earth starts off covered in water, then the dry land and the plants are made, the sun, moon, and the stars are made. On day five, we get sea and flying creatures, both made in the same day, one didn't evolve into the other, and then land animals and man on day six. Okay, that's the order of creation in six literal 24-hour days presented in the Bible. The order of evolution is that somewhere between 15 and 18 billion years, when I was a kid it was 4 billion years, now it's pushing 18 billion years as of this year in, in, the, in new updated theories, right? So somewhere between 15 and 20 billion years ago, this big bang happened that took all the nothing and turned it into everything. And then the stars came about within about four to five billion years. And then it took another four to five billion years for our sun to come about. And then somewhere out of that, we got a molten earth about four and a half billion years ago. And that molten earth eventually cooled and created the first oceans where melted rock somehow became water. And then somehow, someday, life came out of that water that had cooled from molten metal. Okay, so but this series of events puts the earth starting hot and fiery. The Bible series of events puts the earth starting cold and watery, right? And the, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then he made dry land. So there's all these different concepts that these are just a, a handful of how evolution and creation conflict as stories, as models, as theories, let alone as how we conflict with each other. So um, looking at that, we know that disagreements between evolutionists and biblical creationists run deep. And the reason for that is because we have fundamentally opposing worldviews. We talked, we did several lessons about worldviews and assumptions, and the fact that we all have one, right? We all have a worldview, and that worldview determines our presuppositions, and it determines the lens through which we view evidence. The same evidence that happens right in front of a creationist and an evolutionist can be interpreted differently. It's exactly the same fact, but our interpretation is colored by our worldview, our presuppositions. And if we're not willing or able or ready to challenge our own worldview, then it doesn't matter the evidence that's put in front of us. We will reinterpret it so that we stay comfortable with what we know we believe already. So this is a good quote from an evolutionist and a professor of biology named Douglas Futuyama. Futuyama? Futuyama? I don't know. That guy, Doug. So Doug says, creation and evolution between them exhaust the possible explanations 
for the origin of living things. Organisms either appeared on Earth fully developed, or they didn't. If they did not, they must have developed from pre-existing species by some process of modification. That's evolution. If they did appear in a fully developed state, they must indeed have been created by some omnipotent intelligence, for no natural process could possibly form inanimate molecules into an elephant or a redwood tree in one step. He's absolutely right. And he's an evolutionist. He's saying, either it happened our way, or it happened the Bible's way, and there's no other choice. And if it happened our way, right, then it had to be this process. And if it happened the Bible's way, it had to be exactly like it says, some omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, intelligence. He's, he's ascribing that to intelligent design, not to the God of the Bible. But still, intelligent design flies in the face of evolution. But it's, it's a step below actually agreeing with the Bible, which is what biblical creation is all about. So this is just one of a lot of logical, honest statements by really smart people who believe in evolution. There's therefore no middle road or a place of compromise. The second main reason for this conflict, like I said, I'm only talking about two of the reasons for the conflict today. The second main reason tells us why there's no middle ground. And that second reason is that the conflict between evolutionists and biblical creationists is not personal and involves the character of the creator. Okay, so there's, a, for a Christian to claim to believe in Jesus Christ means that among other things, I subscribe to and endorse the teachings of Jesus Christ. That means I have to know them. And it goes hand in hand with my readiness to take a stand on those teachings as they are recorded in Scripture. I can say that I believe in Timothy, but if I don't know what he stands for, right, then I'm saying that ignorantly. And if I say I, I support him, then I might be supporting something that I don't want to, because I don't know. I'm uneducated about it, right? So I can trust his character from however many interactions I've had with him, but the more interactions I have with him, the more I know about what I'm saying when I say I trust him, I support him, I believe in him, right? It is much, much more than that with God. We believe God or we don't believe God. We ascribe to what he teaches or we don't. And we're all mostly inconsistent with that simply because of a lack of knowledge. If our knowledge is not increasing with God, we can't increasingly or more accurately know what it means to say, I believe in God, I believe the Bible, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not of my own works, but in faith alone, right? If, if I can't say those things because I don't know those things, then just making a blatant statement of, I believe in evolution and I believe the Bible. You don't really know either one of them, right? So your statement is, at best, ignorant, at worst, a lie, okay? So then, we don't want to lie. <laughs> if, if, whether, you were, whether you're an atheist, a humanist, um, a creationist, a theist, right? Nobody really wants to lie. And even though we are the only ones with a worldview that would justify the desire not to lie, the, right, the concept of morality and right and wrong. We'll get into that later. So this conflict has, again, it has its basis 
in the character and how we how we look at the character of the creator, but also we are responsible, both evolutionists and creationists are responsible for knowing what it is we say we believe, because both of us have to have faith in what we are claiming. Um, let's take, for example, the, the meaning of the word beginning um, and the word day. These are just two words in the Bible. If I say I believe the Bible, there are two words, and they're in the first chapter of the Bible, the word beginning and the word day. Okay? Beginning, I'm sure we'll all agree, means the point at which something starts or begins. Okay? The word Genesis, which is the title of the first book of the Bible, can mean origin, birth, or creation. And those words are tied together. Okay? The, the genesis of all things, the beginning, the origin of all things, starts with in the beginning. Then we have the word that day, right, which in the Bible, almost always, there are certain exceptions, almost always means a period of light between sunrise and sunset, or the length of time that the earth takes to rotate around its own axis, axis 24 hours. Um, and we know, by measurement, observable science, there are seven days in a week. The Earth turns about its axis with where the, not necessarily relation to the sun, but it turns about its axis 20, once every 24 hours. And then we have a period of marking seven of those rotations and then starting over again. Okay, so then in Mark 10, 6, Jesus refers to the beginning. Didn't catch that one. Let's go ahead and populate all of them. So in Mark 10, 6, Jesus refers to the beginning by saying the beginning of the creation, right? But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And in Matthew 19, 4, Jesus says, Have you not read that he, God, who made them at the beginning, made them male and female? Okay? So Jesus, in both of these passages, in Mark, which is Peter's gospel, and in Matthew, which is Matthew's gospel, in both of these, refers to the beginning. Okay, so then in Genesis 1-1, we find in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The rest of that chapter and into the next chapter, man, I was moving too fast on this. Okay, so the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 make it very clear that the beginning lasted a period of six days, and then God rested on the seventh day. This can't be figurative millions or billions of years. It has to be six literal days from both a logic perspective and a grammar perspective. There is no evidence in the history of the Hebrew language for the, the context and the grammar used for these words day to mean anything other than a literal 24-hour day because they added to the language, right? God made sure it was absolutely clear by saying the evening and the morning were the first day. He didn't just say, and that was the first day. Right? If the word day is by itself the context like in the day of the Lord, right, can mean a period of time, some indefinite time in the future. But if it's associated in certain ways, and a few lessons ago we covered this, um, I don't know how many months ago it was now, but we did cover this in one of the previous videos about all of the context grammatically in Hebrew that makes sure you understand every time with no exception if these conditions in the context are met, this word means a 24-hour literal day. In all of Genesis, it literally means a 24-hour day. But it also 
means that this is the only, like I said, it's also logical. The only logical basis, oh, did I miss that one? I deleted it. Okay, never mind. I thought I had Exodus in here. So Exodus uh, 20, 9 through 11 is the, verse, the verses that I'm looking at here. That this is the only logical basis to understand Moses' command to the Israelites to work six days and rest on the seventh day. When Moses, in chapter 20 of Exodus, commands by God's command, he then gives the command to the Israelites to work six days and rest on the seventh day. He didn't say work six periods of time and rest for a period of time. He said work for six days and rest for a day. Our timetable works on a seven-day week. They followed the, the moon and had a Saturday to Friday uh, calendar. The Romans instituted a Sunday to Saturday calendar. If you have a work week of Monday through Sunday, whatever you do with that, there are still seven days in that time period, no matter where you start or end it. That is a biblical time scale of the 24-hour day and a seven-day week, right? So the concept is logical and grammatical. And then, if you look at, again, Jesus' teaching, it's utterly inconsistent to claim to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus and then to deny or ignore his teachings. If I, if I don't know anything about what Timothy says or does, right, but I say I'm going to follow this guy and I believe in him and I support what he says, but I know nothing about what he says. And then somebody says, oh, so you support, you know, burning kittens. What? No. Well, that's, that's what he says. No, he doesn't. Right? And then I deny that he even says it when I don't know. Okay? And because now I'm conflating my own opinions with the affiliation that I claim. So we, that's very dangerous, and we need to make sure that we're, again, studying to show ourselves approved unto God. Um, but in both John chapter 8 and John chapter 5, Jesus makes it clear that if you don't listen to Moses, then you're not going to listen to him, right? Moses wrote about Jesus. There's a great book from a, a Messianic Jewish professor and pastor in Israel that I have called Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus. And it's the concept of all of the corollaries of what Moses Moses' writings of the first five books of the Bible Right? are pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. And that's what Jesus means, is that Moses wrote of him. All of the things that, he, that they were doing were symbols to point them. Right, As Paul said, the law that was given by through Moses was a schoolmaster to point us to Christ. And if we can't believe what Moses wrote, which includes Genesis 1 through 11, then how do we claim to believe Jesus? Okay, then one more thing. All of the attacks and admissions that I was going to get to, which will probably be next week now, um, they're directed at creationists. As I said, this conflict is, is typically directed person to person, but we need to remember, as Paul taught, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, right? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, and it is a spiritual war that's going on here to deny God, to deny the Word of God, and to deify man. The same strategy that the devil instituted in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. The very first man and woman, when the devil went after them, he had a three-part strategy. It was cause doubt of God's word, to then deny God's word, and then to deify man. Yea, hath God said, and he shall not surely die. 
ye shall be as gods. That's always been his play since the beginning of time. And he still uses it today to doubt God's word. Oh, it's just a bunch of writing from the Bronze Age of a bunch of failed men that want to control you, right? It's mythology, you shouldn't read it. If you don't read it, then you don't know anything about the fact that it's not mythology. It stands separate from every other book in the world. But if you don't read it, you'll just believe what people tell you. Then there's denying God's word. It's not inspired. It's not God's word. If anything, it's a lie, right? I know people that were born Christians who have abandoned the faith because they have studied the scripture of other religions and seen how faulty they are. And in their limited knowledge of the word of God, they conflate the two and say, well, this part that I don't understand is obviously wrong and erroneous. And somebody said that's smarter than me. It's erroneous. And I know these are erroneous because I studied them. So it's all just lies. And they conflate the word of God with every other word of man and then abandon that faith. So that's the denial. But then really, if somebody tries to say there is no God, if somebody tries to claim atheism, there's a small book by Ray Comfort called God Doesn't Believe in Atheists. It's a great little read. It's like pamphlet length. It's really short. But the concept of that book is there's no such thing as atheism because anyone who claims that there is no God still has a final authority for the choices in their life. They are their final authority. If they were honest, they would call themselves humanists and not atheists because humanism stands on the concept that the only God, if there is a higher power, is the